0: podcast for myself john and my friend chris talk about a couple of movies around a theme of our choice chris how are you doing today
1: i'm doing great john it is uh, another saturday night we're here to talk about another pair of movies so honestly i couldn't be in a better position right now how are you doing
0: i am doing pretty good also because it's saturday also because i'm talking to you and uh before we get into today's movies i did want to just briefly mention that uh the uh The upcoming uh, Hooptober series uh, is actually not upcoming at all, but in fact, uh, already started with uh, Chris having uh, starting his marathon of horror movies. And not only is Chris doing Hooptober (laughs) posts, uh, we actually have ourselves uh, a new contributor as well uh, to the cinema dual website. Uh, Dan Morris, who was on a previous episode with us on the podcast has started writing and is doing his own Hooptober series. So if you want twice as many horror movies, uh, which is already too many horror movies in my opinion but if you uh, you want to even double that uh you can go to cinemaduel.com and check out all of their hooptober shenanigans
1: Yeah, I'll do a quick plug for Dan. So Dan was on our uh, Paul Verhoeven episode, uh, one of my favorite episodes we've done. So he's joined now as a contributor, um, doing a lot of different things. We're starting off with Hooptober, um, which traditionally starts on September 15th of every year, even though it's a horror marathon, because to do 34 films with all of the rules and get all the reviews in, um, El monster, David Hood, who does the – October every year. He's extended it the last three years to start on mm-hmm. September 15th. So yeah, go. I think both of us at this point have nine films logged um, on Cinema Duel some real great ones. And then obviously next month, John and I, as always, will be doing our annual Hooptober episode where we'll be picking film from my list so that I don't have to go and watch even more movies um, in order to get my uh, quota done for the marathon. So a lot more to come there. And uh, originally this was supposed to be um, a blind spot episode. What I had done was Coming up, um, BFI is going to be doing their sight and sound poll for the 100 greatest films of all time. They do it every 10 years. Um, So I was looking and said, hey, John, it would be really interesting if we were to do our blind spots uh, based on the poll. But the poll actually hasn't come out yet. So we went and we looked at 2012. And just incidentally, it happened to be that if you were to start at the highest ranked film – and then moved down – the highest-ranked film in 2012 was Vertigo, by the way – and moved down from there. Both of our first blind spot movies were silent films. Um, so we're going to take a little bit of leeway. Maybe we'll go back to the blind spot when the 2022 Sight and Sound poll is listed. But for now, we're going to call this Silent Classics Um so, John, I won't talk about what films we picked yet, um, but uh wanted to just get a sense from you. I had actually taken a silent film course in college. So, um, in fact, one of the films that we're going to be talking about, I actually got to see on the big screen and then do like a three-hour dissection of it afterwards with uh, Professor Arthur Lenick, who was a, a pretty eminent scholar when it came to the silent film um, classics of, of the time. So I've had a little bit of experience with, with silent films. It certainly is not something that I reach to very often. Um, but there's a draw and there's an appeal there for me. Um, what's been your experience with silent films up till now, as far as what you've seen, your desire to see, um, stuff like that?
0: It's not necessarily my, I guess, my genre of choice, um, which is not to say that I like dislike it or anything. In my experience, the further back you reach into like, the 20s to 40s or 50s or whatever, um, there there's enough distance in terms of, like, cultural touch points that I have trouble sometimes grasping. Like, I have sometimes trouble focusing on things. And especially if you're taking out the part where people talk, um, <laughs> it can be even perhaps, like, harder for me to sort of keep that attention and so it hasn't been something that i've or, or other than just sort of like as an academic exercise i guess we we came at this topic sort of like sideways it wasn't necessarily our intention to do a silent right. movie episode but now that we're here and and doing it that i i found it was very interesting to watch both of the movies that we did and so yeah no complaints here
1: Okay. Well, with that, why don't we jump into our our first film, which is going to be ostensibly my pick, even though it was the one film that I had seen as far as Blind Spot. So we'll start with my pick, but your Blind Spot, the fifth highest ranked film of the 2012 uh, Sight and Sound Poll, which is 1927's Sunrise, a song of two humans. Uh, a Song of Two Humans. It, to me, one of the most beautiful titles uh, in cinema history. 1927 by F.W. Murnau. Um, this was his first film coming to America. So primarily, he was a director in Germany, where if you know him at all, you probably know him from his ground groundbreaking... Or groundbreaking, if you want to pronounce it correctly, silent horror classic Nosferatu, uh, the Vampire. This is a very different film. This is a very much a fable, a parable about um, lust, about love, about the country versus the city, and it, it just kind of really plays as this cross between expressionism and reality. It, it with really just features three characters. It features a man his wife and the woman from the city. Uh, it's it's very telling that this story, they don't actually have any names. They are just personifications. But at its crux, this is about a man, a hardworking farmer out in the country with his wife and their young child, who is beguiled by the charms of a woman from the city uh, who has traveled to the country to go on vacation. And uh, she has seduced him with her charms and her feminine wiles and Plots to stay with him forever and sell the farm and move to the city and have lots of money by killing the wife uh drowning her in the nearby lake and It's about what happens when the husband attempts to do that and uh understands kind of the love that could potentially be lost and 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 the after effects of that from a story perspective, this film is very simple. there's really not a lot to this film where the film I think is excellent is in its direction, in its technique, in its cinematography. This is a really interesting time for silent cinema. 1927, really a couple years away from when sound really takes over. Um, By the time 1927 came around and this movie was being done, The Jazz Singer was already out. And in fact, in this instance um, of Sunrise, I think that you and I both watched John, um, the movie tone version, there is actually some sound effects and there's some syncing of things that goes on in the film, but it's not quite a sound film. And there's something beautiful about the way this movie is completely untethered by sound for me. Um, one of the things that's kind of lost in the transition to sound, uh, in the late twenties, early thirties is the camera movement. Back here in 1927, mm-hmm. uh, the thing that makes Sunrise so beautiful is the camera is completely untethered because you don't have to be locked into place because of the sound boxes and the microphones, which for a decade after sound came out, if you watch the films of that period, movies are very static and they don't, they don't do a lot of movement because you had to be locked into one place or you wouldn't be able to capture the sound. Here, Murnau and uh, particularly um, Carl Struess and Charles Rocher, the cinematographers, they do amazing things with the camera. Um, There are inner titles here to kind of tell the story, and even those inner titles are somewhat stylized. But this whole movie, if those inner titles were taken away, you can understand every instance of this movie. Because of how beautiful the camera moves, because of how it floats and how it is able to, within camera, do these amazing effects that kind of show the pain and the anguish of the characters and the dream sequences and and their fantasies and their fears, everything kind of coming together. Um, so I, I think the first thing that I would ask of you, John, is because I know in our speaking between the two films that we're going to talk about today, you definitely have a preference for one. Um, and I don't think it's this one, but I wanted to ask you um, how, especially in light of what you said with regards to silent films, um, although I would argue silent film, not as a genre, but just as a period of history, because obviously we're talking about two very different films, genre wise, both that are silent, but how did you react to the lack of the lack of talking here? Did it really, hurt your ability to understand what's being played here. And then two, just as far as the technique, um, were you touched, were you aware of the technique? Was it was it kind of invisible for you, or was it something that stood out for you over the course of the movie? And then how did that play ultimately about how you felt about Sunrise, a song of
0: two humans? I think that the first, if I'm if I don't, if I remember correctly, I think the first shot is of the train station where you can see in the background all of the people walking back and forth and you can see in the foreground the train moving and it looks i mean i'm almost certain it's a it's a model train that is yeah. positioned in the foreground to make it uh, to force the perspective, right? A lot of forced perspective in this film. There's there's one shot where uh, someone is really close to the camera, and you see someone walking farther away, and it and for like a half second before your brain clicks in, it looks like because um, this is very much a fable. My first thought is like, are we dealing with some kind of like giant situation here? Are these tiny <laughs> like uh, <laughs> uh, tiny people? So like the even in the even in the first round, what struck struck me, of course, is the the, the camera techniques uh, that are employed, which certainly I didn't uh, I didn't see coming. I think I it, it took me until my second viewing, I think, to clock the fable nature of the yeah. story and how that fits in with the the camera techniques, and that allowed me to appreciate it a whole lot more because the first time around with no context for what the movie was and seeing that these, this is a song of two humans characters who have no names are just given uh descriptions. Right. It, um, and then there's, uh, and then the opening title credits, I think talk about like, whether you're in the, in the farm or in the city, like this is this, these, these things are universal. And the, the plot is that, and and i don't even think it's subtext i don't even think it's metaphorical she the the woman from the city literally puts a spell on uh on the husband who then like we talk about how this is a very different movie than nosferatu but like when this guy is under the thrall of the woman from the city he is very much a frankenstein's monster um and he, he he's like the way he's lit, the way he acts and moves is very monstrous. Yeah. Well, and
1: and, and, and an interesting point of that to, to directly relate to Frankenstein, to your point. Um. So George O'Brien plays the man. He's the husband. One of the things that Murnau did to kind of get the performance he wanted from him, they put lead in his shoes so that when he walked it was incredibly difficult for him to walk to get that almost like heavy weighted down lumbering gait so even when it's not even a camera trick i mean murnau pulls out every trick in the book to kind of affect the i think you chose the perfect word the 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 fable performance that he wants to get out of his actors for this particular
0: story and the thing that's wild to it was it was wild to me I thought I was being primed for was sort of a, this is a story that can happen to anyone. This is a, a completely relatable, understandable story that is that everyone can connect to. And I'm pretty sure that at no point have any of the things that happen in this movie are things I could conceive of happening. <laughs> um,
1: are you saying you never had to chase after a drunk pig in a ballroom during a dance sequence? Anything that's never happened to you?
0: I Or I've never tried to kill my wife and then try to win her affections back and be successful well, at it.
1: To be fair, you're Canadian. So, that, I mean, <laughs> I'm not saying that has anything to do with it. But let me take odds with what you said just a little bit. Because like you, I have never tried to kill my... Well, for the record, because this may be listened to for posterity, I have never tried to kill my wife. Uh, only to then reconcile with her in the city and then try to bring her back to shore, only to almost lose her to a tempest storm that throws her overboard in the exact manner of the murder that I was planning in the original part of the film. That has never happened in real life. But when we talk about Fable and we talk about Parable and we we talk about um, what is actually kind of happening underneath here, I think it is much more common, although maybe the circumstances may be somewhat different, to see the grass greener on the other side, to not appreciate what you have and to not understand that what you have is actually very good and very worthwhile to hold on to and to cherish because the thing on the other side is much shinier. Now, whether that may be another woman or another person or a job or something, I think is something that many people can relate to. And I, I think what Murnau does so beautifully here is uses story and uses fable so everything is heightened and everything Mm -hmm. is over dramatized and everything is slightly larger in life to tell a story that I, I would argue if you read it that way is fairly common. The, and, and it's the, and it's the issue of coveting that, which I don't have. Right. It's, it's, Mm -hmm. and we'll get much more religious when we talk about the next film, but I do find a little bit of religious fervor in, coveting thy neighbor's wife coveting th- thy th- thy neighbor's goods that's that's what this film is actually about and 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 the, you know the road to temptation and and how to kind of go to a certain point and then realize what it is that you're risking and come back to it that that i think is very uh relatable
0: you're right because Without the sound recording re- requiring things to be sort of fixed in place, having things allowed to be heightened in that way. Hey, let's, let's say that I'm used to that kind of thing in other contexts, but perhaps sure. not, not something like this. Um, and I'm thinking back now to whatever big giant hardcover book of fables that I used to be read as a kid. And you're right. These are teaching simple moral lessons through, you know, talking magical, talking animals, that kind of stuff. So that can I I can see your point. How does that sound?
1: (laughs) And I would argue, though, um, and this is going to come into play when we talk about kind of the differences between this movie and our next movie, where our next movie, I'm going to argue the draw and the beauty of our next film is all in the performance and in the acting. Whereas here. Although I love the acting and I love the performance, um, there's one there is one sequence that moved me to tears then made me laugh out loud in the same sequence. Um, but this is a movie where the technical execution to me is what makes this the classic that it is. This is not a classic because of its story. Because I, I think to your point, it's a simple fable, it's a simple story. But if I quote Ebert, um, who actually has both of our films in his great movies, um, Canon, um, it's not what a movie is about. It's about how it goes about it. And I think how this movie goes about its simple story is what makes this a great movie. Um, like I said, I, I, I think the techniques you see here, there are two sequences in particular. Um, the beginning sequence where the woman from the city and, and, and the man um, are plotting the murder of the wife. And she's like, well, what if she were to drown? And you can um, tie reeds up and you can hold on to the reeds reeds while she drowns. There's this amazing sequence where it follows her footprints in the mud. And it's just this gorgeous floating tracking shot. Again, this is 1927. Camera moves should not be this sophisticated in 1927. But there's this floating shot of her feet tramping through the mud and like they're, they're sullying themselves. They are getting dirty by the things that they are contemplating. There's this beautiful mix of metaphor and imagery coming together to relay the idea that they are plotting a murder. And as they plot the murder, they get more and more filthy as they go through the mud to get to the point where she's grabbing all the reeds to tie together. But the camera just kind of sits and floats and then rises up to her as she continues to talk to him and, 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 and plot this, this murder. Um, I think that's where this movie to me becomes in the realm of classic. Um, I watched this movie twice too. I watched it again today for the second time and just like you, I got so much more out of it the second time Um, that scene. And then later on my favorite sequence in the entire movie, um, even though I have better images, there's the the image at, at, at the end where, you brought up um, as they're sailing back from the city. Now the husband and wife are completely in love again. A huge storm comes and the wife gets thrown overboard. And then the husband and all the town goes to look for her. That image of like pitch blackness, but these boats kind of coming at these different angles with lanterns and people trying to find her. That's like an image that will stay with me for the rest of my life. But from a sequence perspective, the middle sequence where he's still trying to win her over because he terrifies her. He takes her out to the lake. He almost kills her. He starts to, like, he lurches up like Frankenstein. I think you make a great comparison there. But then has second thoughts. Rows her to shore where she runs away from him into the city. And there's great, there's great camera angles as she runs in between cars and he's chasing her. But they go into a church and they watch a wedding at a church. And he just breaks down. He sees... The consummation of marriage. He sees, well, not the consummation of marriage. This is 1927. <laughs> That's a different movie entirely, but he sees the vows being given. He sees the sacrament of marriage being performed and it kills him. And uh, George O'Brien as the man, he's such a hulking huge figure compared to Janet Gaynor, um, as, as, as the wife, um, to see him break down and become so small to her. It's uh, that devastated me watching it the second time. I just burst out crying watching it to have that moment of realization of, Oh my God, I have transgressed so severely and now I see it. And the pain of seeing it is so much that it breaks you down. I have definitely been there. Um, and watching O'Brien kind of melt to his wife. Um, and they leave the church and they're in like the hallway before they go out the church. And he just, he crumbles before her and she becomes now the towering figure. It is monumental. It's such an amazing moment for me. And then now caps it by having them walk out of the church and all of the guests are there waiting for the actual married couple to come out and instead they see this hillbilly and his wife walk out of the church completely locked in love with each other and they're just looking at them like okay uh, I guess this is Okay. Like they don't cheer or anything, but they're just looking at this couple come down. You know, they were expecting something else. And I love the subtle kind of bit of humor that Marnow tags at the end before he continues on with the film. I mean, for those moments alone, this is, this is a, um, for me and I, I i i would not even try to put this on our shelf of fame for cinema Duel, but those are the moments that make this an essential movie for me um to see how subtle without the use of sound without the use of voices murnau is able to convey these emotions the the, the pain the sorrow the forgiveness and then to immediately lighten the mood with a moment of levity before they go off to the rest of their their evening the way that he's able to do that
0: i agree and uh I th- you you talked about the the moment of humor when they're coming out of the the chapel and uh the people expecting a different couple are just sort of mildly confused uh for a bit um it's i would not describe it as a moment of like technical filmmaking fr- from like a camera movement and positioning uh, it's, it's oh not it at all that no, doesn't do that but i have actually a moment like that too which is i, I don't remember ex- i don't remember the exact moment that it happens but the 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 quote woman from the city disappears in the second third of the movie pretty much because it, it's because that's the section where they're uh the couple is in the is in the city and they are rekindling their relationship um and but there is a moment where just randomly they cut back to the woman in the city who is just sort of like just hanging out reading the newspaper <laughs> yeah. just doing nothing like just acknowledging the she's fact she's smoking that, like, a cigarette <laughs> yeah she's smoking a cigarette she's just she's just hanging out doing whatever it's seemingly unbothered by the fact that her, her conspirator is just like gone doesn't uh not too concerned about just about anything that's happening just happy to be trailing out uh largely ignored by the movie during that part I just it, it, both times I watched it it made me laugh because I was just like <laughs> yeah yeah just checking in with her moment. she's still doing fine <laughs> <laughs> absolutely
1: a couple of quick things I mean Murnau life was tragically cut short he died in ni- 1931 he had come to America he made three films um and then died but this one Nosferatu um Two of the best films, I, I I think, in the German era, you can see uh, "The Last Laugh," which is one that I also saw um, on the big screen for for class from nineteen twenty four. Unbelievable! I, I mean, this was a guy who moved the technique of cinema further than so many other people, um, and for that, uh, I, I mean, for me, he's he's just a, a a giant in the field of cinema history. So, but completely different from what we're going to talk about next with your pick, John, although it's my blind spot, um, where I think the camera technique is secondary to something that Murnau maybe doesn't capture as well in Sunrise, and that's performance. Uh, So, unless you've got anything to add, I'm perfectly willing to jump into what is probably the best
0: performance in cinema history. Absolutely. Let's talk about the Passion of Joan of Arc. Okay, so The Passion of Joan of Arc as a nineteen twenty-eight movie, uh directed by Carl Dreyer and stars Rene Falconetti. Uh, As the titular Joan of Arc, I will like, I'm just going to front load my judgment of this movie up at the beginning of the episode, which is that all of the issues that I've talked about in this episode around how I have trouble connecting to silent movies, movies that are, you know, like older than even my parents, for example, um, none of those things apply. It is somehow as if this movie found a portal in time space and just was like, nope, this is like th- just absolutely blew me away from the very first second. And we can talk about uh, and that's not to say that I think it's perfect. There's, I do have some uh, a little bit of reservations around it, but it from so many pers- from so many aspects of the movie's production, um, it. It shook me. It shook me so much that I didn't actually watch it a second time because I was like, nah, I got it. I I got it in one. (laughs) But that is that is the extent to which I was like, no, I pretty much absorbed everything I needed to out of this. I think that probably a good place for us to start with, which we won't dwell on necessarily too long, is on one of the biggest things I think is interesting about this particular movie is the soundtrack. I believe that when we were talking about Sunrise, the soundtrack to that that we watched was the original because that was a synchronized soundtrack. Is that right?
1: Yeah, it was the synchronized movie tone soundtrack uh, for that. There are other instances for it, but that's the primary kind of major one for the film.
0: If, if you go onto the Wikipedia page for The Passion of Joan of Arc, the the list of soundtracks that have accompanied this movie are just absolutely, there's so many different soundtracks. And so there is absolutely a question of like, which soundtrack do you watch and how does that affect your viewing? I have not had a chance to watch, you know, to explore the other alternate soundtracks that are available, but the one that is on the the one that's sort of the default one on the criterion channel is the, uh, is a soundtrack called, uh, voices of light, which, uh, by Richard Einhorn. And this came yeah. out in like the mid nineties. Um, and so that potentially could have serious effects on how I'm, uh, like the, the fact that it is something that is the, the, the score of the, my experience of this movie, how ha- a significant chunk of the movie experience actually came out much more recently. Um, is could be what's underpinning some of my like exuberant, uh, experience of this movie. Um, but I mean, yeah, like let's talk about the the music for a second. Like how, how, how does that, how does the, how does the voices of light impact your experience and interpretation of the movie?
1: Yeah. So let's talk about that for a second. So to be clear, to understand the history of what happened here, um, Richard Einhorn, um, specifically constructed Voices of Light to accompany this film uh, when he saw it. He had he had watched the film, had the idea to kind of create something to accompany it. So in the 90s, created Voices of Light to accompany the film. And that was the default setting I think both of us have seen for this. I actually had seen one other version, um, and I'm not going to remember the name of the artist at the time, but not only are there so many different audio options to watch the film, there are different kind of frames per second speed for this as well. So the version that we both watched and are accustomed to is the 24 frames per second with Einhorn's Voices of Light as the accompaniment. Um, I also got to watch a 20 frames per second which supposedly Dreyer, Carl uh, Theodore Dreyer, who's the director of the film. He had given directions as to what this should be and there were some thought that maybe 20 frames per second was more ideal. I had watched one with a piano accompaniment which was fine, but doesn't hold a candle to the Einhorn score. The Einhorn score taken outside of the film is gorgeous in of, it, in of itself. So to see it paired with the images that we're going to talk about here for the film, I mean, it's, it's perfect. Um, I already mentioned about how much I loved the technique from a technical perspective for Sunrise here. I think the draw for me is all about performance and I know you're going to talk about performance in a moment, but that performance is just enhanced by what Einhorn does with his very overtly religious kind of uh, choir um, perspective when it comes to voices of light.
0: In the, in the break between segments, you talked about uh, how a possible criticism of voices of light soundtrack was that it was overtly religious, um, or more so than the film deserved. And in reading up on the movie beforehand, the, the idea was that this was ne- perhaps meant as a, this was perhaps meant as a, a more like humane, less like a more, I guess, I don't know if secular is the right word, but like not as quite religiously entwined, uh, take on the, on the, the, the uh, on Joan of Arc, and why those criticisms largely pass um, me by, and I think that this is something we can use to as an opportunity to segue into what should rightly be the focus of this episode. It is Falconetti's performance, but the 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 movie is able to hold the more let's say worldly nature of what's going on. Um, in this situation. However, the, so much of the movie is literally focused, like, like super close-up focused on Joan of Arc's face and her experience of what she believes to be the voice of God and her, she has, like, she has transcended. It is so dialed into the performance um, of that feeling that the score for voices of light i think really is absolutely the best way to go with something like this in terms of like whether whether or not you like regardless of how you the audience um respond to it or how you feel about it um i think is absolutely a profound uh amplification of what is already an amazing performance, which is of someone who thinks that they have transcended human existence. And I think that this is probably a good chance. uh, This is probably where we need to talk about Rene Falconetti. Holy fucking shit.
1: Yeah. Well, before we even go into Falconetti's performance, um, you're spot on with your assessment of Einhorn's score. And I think there's something to be said for, Just as we do with this podcast, there's something to be said for eyes looking at something decades removed and finding themes and finding um, sequences that kind of speak to something. And then putting something to that later, which is what Einhorn did. uh, Einhorn created this in the nineties. This movie was created in 1928, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. So there's something to be said for having lived and breathed the movie for so long and then putting score, putting music, putting notes to the beats and the movements of the film that you just don't get when you're creating the score at the time that the movie is being created. You know, I'm sure that Dreyer – we didn't talk about Carl Theodore or Dreyer. Um, Again, if there are two masters of the silent era that I would kind of argue – if you want to understand the history of cinema, you need to talk about two people. You need to talk about Murnau, which we just talked about, and you need to talk about Dreyer. Um, who from who has a distinctly European sensibility to these things. So you get on the one hand German moving to American, then you get on the other hand distinctly European with Dreyer, who did Vampire, um, who did a number of films, but probably this is his greatest film, Passion of Joan of Arc. There's something to be said for having decades removed from the experience and then being able to craft something, and I think Einhorn does that with Voices of Light. It's a beautiful score. It is so perfectly attuned to what is being conveyed in the Passion of the of Arc that you really can't separate the two, even though I have tried to and I watched the other version at a slower speed and I didn't really take to it. All of that leads itself to, though, where we talk about the technical acuity of Sunrise, here it's all about performance, which is not to diminish Dreyer's contribution as a director. The way that he is able to light... We should talk about what this movie is, which is basically the trial of Joan of Arc, the trial of a woman who believes she is on a mission from God to um, bring forth France to victory she is on trial with a bunch of French religious heads who were appointed by England and have a very decided view as to how things should be so it, it is all about the interrogation between the two and then the ultimate um, sentencing and burning of Joan of Arc which everybody knows now by his by, by history but what Dreyer does that is so beautiful, uh, as as, a, as opposed to Murnau's technical kind of acuity a with cameras and moving stuff, here he is entirely focused on faces. He's entirely focused on performance. And he lights the church and he lights the interrogators in a harsh, cold light. And Falconetti he lights in a completely different way. To let her expression, to let her performance shine through. And it is probably you and I, John, talked about this outside of the podcast, but bar none. I mean, to me, this might be the greatest acting performance I have ever seen on film. And the fact that it was done in 1928 is astounding, but there's nothing that I have seen that rivals what Falconetti does with Joan of Arc here. So I want to bring it back to you for a second because you wanted to start with the music and then go to the performance. What did you first kind of dry, like derive from the performance when you watched this for the first time? You only watched it once. Both of us only watched this once. And I think that's a telling thing as well, that for Sunrise, we watched twice to kind of pick up on the technical cues and things that were happening. But there's something to be said for I only needed to watch The Passion of Joan of Arc once to really glean everything I needed to know from this movie. So what was that for you?
0: I think – after an initial like as I was getting settled in my, my, my I have to be honest, my gut reaction is this is a woman on Twitter espousing her expert opinions based on her career of being a professional and having dipshits uh, uh, who don't know anything just uh, give her shit on the Internet. All the time about it. That was my first thought. Was like, this is this is what this feels like. It's (laughs) like she she knows everything, and everyone's just trying to like needle her to death. Uh, Only, um, but then like again, as once you get past that, like once I got past that initial look at me and being clever, um, and settling into what the 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 rhythms of the movie and actually dialing into what, um, is is happening. I think that like again it this this movie is i would say that it is not like multifaceted i think this movie hits one tone but does it at such an intensity and sustains it for so long that it is a marvel to behold and for me that Intensity is in captured is, is captured by Falconetti's facial reactions to just her her because again most of the movie is looking at her face um, with her sort of glassy eyes and the the it it like I've seen people call this like the first torture porn movie which I guess you could but like <laughs> but but my but but what I see in and this is an this is a actor. This is Falconetti is a actor portraying a role on film. I know that this is an acting performance. But when I see the movie, when I am focused on her face and this character's experience, um, with especially the 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 detail of the like the glassy eyes that never, like, almost I don't remember if she actually sheds tears, but like so much of the movie is just sustained glassy eyed staring off into the distance the the horror the div- but also the, the the divine inspiration like the all of the things both good and bad of of what she has gone through register the entire time like yeah. i fully believe that the person i'm watching on the screen has in fact heard from god um There's no question in my mind that this performance is of a person who has uh, done all that and is completely entranced and also super fucked up by it. Yeah. Like, again, it hits that note pretty early and sustains it for most of the running time of the movie. I, I would be impressed if that kind of performance was given now. But it would also exist in a world where I would expect that kind of stuff. To hit that kind of... To hit that kind of emotional physical note and to be able to do that in goddamn nineteen twenty eight is just outstanding. it is it 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 blows my damn mind is what it does
1: a hundred percent. um Fakine's performance is it's 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 an all- timer i there are for a movie that is so obsessed with close ups. You are completely relying on your actors to convey every emotion, every beat of the film. The one thing about Dreyer in this film is that he is not reliant on camera movement to convey story. This movie is almost entirely, except for the end, which is where I have my problem. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Yeah. This movie is almost entirely set on people's faces. And the way that he lights those faces and the way that he... Frames those faces tells everything. And Falconetti, you mentioned the glassy eyes, but there's so much more to those glassy eyes than just like a, like an expression. Um, as they drill into her, I have never been more convinced that a woman has got a, that anyone has received a message from God than Falconetti in this role. Like you see her process every single line and every single thought and every single response. There is nothing in her performance that acts as I'm reading a script. This is a performance that I bought wholeheartedly that this woman got a a message from God and is trying to act out to the extent that she can. Because one of the the brilliant things that Dreyer does in this film with Falconetti, with 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 Joan, or as her name is in the film, Jean, Jean of Arc, uh Jeanne, is that she's a simpleton. She can't read. She can't write. They use that as a plot. Device when they try to convince her that the king is asking her to sign a convention just to make everything go away. Falconetti expresses that beautifully. She's a simpleton. She is not smart. She is not learned. The only thing that she is certain about is that God has spoken to her. So when everyone starts to speak to her and starts to you know go through the Inquisition of what have you heard? What have you learned? What do you know? What are you saying? She always reacts as if she has gotten this divine talk and that guides her every syllable in this movie. And it's astounding. It's astounding. Mm -hmm. People talk about her face and her eyes and her, you know, there is something to be said, um, I have an over album that has a scene from this movie on its album cover when they're shaving her head to prepare her for her burning at the stake. Um, there is something to be said for her look. There is something to be said for the iconography of, of of her appearance. But it is her delivery. It is her processing internally of everything that is being spoken to her and then her response to it that makes this movie as beautiful as it is for four fifths of the film. Yeah. (laughs) And I'll end there for a second because as much as I love this movie and as much as I love her performance and as much as I love the soundtrack by Einhorn, the thing that gets me and John, this is where I want to ask you if you have the same response is the end when she's burned at the stake And I spoiler Joan of arc is burned at the stake. (laughs) That should not be a spoiler for anyone, but spoiler when she's burned at the stake here, um, the crowd rebels and there is kind of a, for lack of a better term, an action sequence at the end that for me, because it's such a weird tonal shift detracts from the rest of the movie. Do you have the same response to that?
0: I think the ending for, like, what this movie does amazingly well stops when they go to the last sequence of her burning at the stake. And it goes on for too long. Straight up. it They, they um, the, if you want to make some cursory mentions of, like, the impact of Joan of Arc afterwards, that's fine. You, I mean, you can't get around the fact that she does burn at the stake. Uh, you like, you can't. That's that's the thing that happened. this isn't fucking inglorious bastards. like we know how this we know we know how this ends um, but I feel like once you've gone through and done all the stuff that you have, the movie as made runs out of steam
1: yeah i i I think too um i'm 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 right with you there. I think the last act where everything becomes. We've been used to like an hour of extreme close-ups and still images. It, th- there's some play there, but once it gets to her burning at the stake and the crowd revolting, and it becomes basically an action sequence of the guard kind of fighting against the um, against the commoners, and then the, for lack of a better term, kind of the sellout of, and then Joan of Arc ascended to heaven in, in, in an inner title. You know, and everything was over. That's kind of how the movie ends i I have an issue with that last sequence as opposed to everything that came before. It's such a an abrupt change in style and attack that it feels slightly disingenuous to me but but that's not really what I take away from the movie. What I take away from the movie is Falconetti's performance, which is one of complete and utter dedication to story, where we're telling a story about, what do you believe? Do you believe that God spoke to you, or do you believe in that the voice of God and the voice of the Lord is spoken through the church? And that's really the crux of what the story talks about. And, and Joan has a very different view of that. And I take that as the crux of what this makes this movie brilliant, as opposed to kind of what happens at the end and the wrap up being kind of slightly lackluster to everything that came before it.
0: What strikes me as well is that a movie that hits, like if we want to talk about movies, I think that would be good to compare this to, um, Honestly, the 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 passion of the Christ, I feel like is trying to operate in a similar it, it, for, for me, at least it feels like it's trying to operate in a similar emotional level. And I haven't seen it since it was in the theaters. But I remember yeah. the the relentless experience of, you know, of, of what happens in that film. And if you want to joke about this being the first torture porn movie, like the passion of the Christ is nothing but gore like the whole time. Yeah. And I feel like the, again, the, like if we want to do this kind of movie that talks about the fervor of someone's religious experience and being persecuted f- for it, um, it is like this movie le- does that in ways that are, this like amazingly more competent and put together than the actual movie about Jesus.
1: Yeah. Well, all offense to Mel Gibson, um, th- Oh where, yeah, I mean, also his too, movie yeah. is a sledgehammer. This movie is a scalpel, right? Yeah. I mean, there's bludgeoning someone to death with a point, and there's someone, and then there's being very subtle and very, you know, having a lot of finesse when it comes to execution. And I think Dreyer has that in spades, as opposed to Gibson and what he tries to do with Passion of the Christ.
0: the The ending is a bummer, uh, and I can't pretend like it's not. But. Uh, <laughs> but weirdly enough it, that's the part of the movie that has the least amount of Falconetti in it. Yeah. So I think that like for for I don't think that this it takes away from the 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 profound achievement that is her performance in this film. Um and all the ways that uh Dryer I think I mispronounced Dryer's name at the beginning. Uh um uh, the way that he sets up his like his camera shots tend to be there's there is some camera movement but not as much but like he's his his the framing of his shots i think is essentially like whoever's doing the cinematography for this film absolutely does is is helping falconetti who um and the voices of light soundtrack is absolutely helping um and it's just making what is already there just that much better and if it's not a perfect film it is a special one to me And I don't have any particularly graceful way to transition into the recommendation segment, especially given my choice of recommendation, because, uh, again, as I mentioned before, uh, this particular not genre is uh, not something I'm super well versed in. Uh, So I'm just going to do a hard pivot and say that my recommendation uh, for people to watch uh, is the movie Prey. Which is the newest film in the Predator franchise? Um, I think the only Predator movie I haven't seen is the the last Shane Black one I didn't watch, but I mean, like ultimately, what this what Prey does that is amazing is that it is it it does everything that it needs to do very like very well and very minimalistically. Like it doesn't uh, it, it it is. Not just like competent, but like well done and well done in a way that is interesting and good without getting overly uh, bogged down by just about anything. It is like it it is what you want when you want to go see that kind of movie. And uh, and the fact that it's shot. In my neck of the woods, and I instantly recognized it as being <laughs> shot in uh in Kananaskis, uh, was a nice bonus, but uh, it's it's just it prey whips ass, it's it's good, it's fun, it, you should go see it.
1: Let me let, let me tell a story, John, okay. if I may. Let me bring you back about 15 years. Um, I'll start by saying I really loved Prey as well, I think it was a wonderful film, I enjoyed the hell out of it. I watched it with my son which brings us back to 15 years prior, uh, 2007, my wife and I, uh, were trying to have a baby. She was pregnant. I had had a surgery. Um, I don't know how many people know about this, but in 2006, I donated a kidney to my brother. My brother has a um, terminal kidney disease and I got him a kidney. The first thing that I did with my wife after donating my kidney was ensure that we could still have children. And a month or so after having uh, donated a kidney, my wife got pregnant and then immediately went to the hospital because there were a lot of complications with my uh, son's birth. And while I was sitting in the hospital with her, this will get to the point of your film in a second. In uh, 2007, I was listening to a lot of podcasts and my favorite podcast at the time was a thing called the totally rad show, which is hosted by three wonderful individuals, Alec Albrecht, Jeff Kanata and a certain young filmmaker called Dan Trachtenberg. Oh. Talked about the movies of the day. And those three guys got me through one of the most traumatic moments of my life as I uh, had my wife in the hospital for a month before our son was born uh, because of complications. So I, my son grew up with me listening to that podcast and seeing Dan Trachtenberg grow from a person who was on podcast talking about movies, talking about his love of things like the karate kid and back to the future. It's directing Uh, and directing. The first thing obviously that I saw him in was 10 Cloverfield lane. He had done a, 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 a portal video before then, but he did Ken 10 Cloverfield lane. It made me sit up and take notice because not only was it just a damn fine movie, but Trachtenberg showed that he had the bones that to me, if you know me as, as anything by now through cinema duel, it's my love of classic cinema. I I grew up on the movies of the forties and the fifties. I grew up in the era of longer takes mm. and static shots and performance over choppy editing and Trachtenberg, I think, is uh, the same. He comes; he's, he's cut from the same mold, even though he's such a younger person. So when I heard that he had done a Predator prequel and uh, got a chance to finally watch it, I, I watched it with my son. And without getting too emotional, it was interesting to watch the movie directed by the guy who held my soul together when my son was having a lot of difficulties being born. Uh, So all that aside, Prey is fantastic. Prey is easily the best Predator movie since the original. And Trachtenberg brings a master sense to pacing, to shot composition, to framing. He is an elder statesman as opposed to one of the new school directors that has to chop a scene every second and a half because god forbid a scene lasts longer than a second he knows his shit Uh, and i was so excited to watch prey and to come away thinking oh man here is somebody who is thoroughly modern but at the same time uh beholden to the masters of the craft from the 40s 50s 60s and beyond uh so that's my (laughs) That's my very personal anecdote to the story about how much I love Prey and how glad I am that you're recommending it.
0: That uh, I'm not going to lie. When you started that story, I was completely (laughs) flummoxed around how you were going to tie that in. But that ended up being, again, like Voices of Light, seriously enhancing of my appreciation of Prey as well. So thank you. Uh, Thank you for sharing that
1: no hey hey thank you dan trachtenberg for being such a kick-ass director
0: absolutely
1: and for staying with me for you know 15 years of what was some of the most incredible moments of my life
0: (laughs) that i i i have no further words except to say chris what do you got for us this time (laughs) so
1: i am going to lead into what we are going to be talking about at length next month um I'll keep it to silent movies because as John alluded to at the beginning of this episode, we are knee deep in Hooptober, uh, the annual horror marathon that I participate in. And we talked about at length last year, uh, both on the website and the podcast and the year before the podcast. So heads up, we'll be doing that again next month. But for now, uh, two of the films I'll talk about are silent films, because one of the things uh, that Hooptober is famous for is its rules. And two of the rules that I had to adhere to was I needed to do a German silent film, and I needed to do a film that starred Lon Chaney, not Lon Chaney Jr., which screwed me (laughs) until this morning when I made some adjustments to my film watching. So the two films that I'm going to recommend, if you were at all interested In the foundations of cinema, and you want to start at the silent era, let me recommend um, The Phantom of the Opera, starring Lon Chaney, uh, I believe 1925. And also The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari by Robert Vine, Um, German expressionism at its finest. Um, Two films that really tout horror, but tout how horror can be achieved without sound. Robert Vine's um, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is one of the foremost um, examples of German expressionism, meaning that reality is an aside to the surrealism and the mood that the film is trying to evoke. So the, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is rife with shadows and canted angles and surrealist imagery to evoke a mood rather than to evoke reality. Um, Which is interesting when we talk about Sunrise and Tell it to Humans before. I think that's one of the great examples of a film that bridges both sides of expressionism and surrealism, especially in how the camera is able to evoke a myriad of images in one shot. They, They did something with masking where they'll mask a part of the frame so it's black and then shoot it again. So you have those images of the man. Um, thinking about the murder of his wife and water rises over his head because they mask parts of the frame to kind of show that. That's what Caligari is. Caligari is one side of the fence there. Caligari is one side. It's firmly an expressionism, canted angles, shadows, and, and surrealist imagery to evoke this tale of terror as a Circus performer comes to town and shows his sleepwalker, his somnambulist, um, played by Conrad Veidt, star of my favorite film of all time, Casablanca, uh, and the murders that are committed because of that. On the other side, the other recommendation that I'm going to talk about is um, The Phantom of the Opera, starring Lon Chaney. This is universal horror six years before universal horror became universal horror. 1931 was an amazing year in horror because in that year you had in February the release of Dracula starring Bela Lugosi, and you had in November the release of Frankenstein starring Boris Karloff. The thing that ties those together besides the studio is the production of Carl Lamel Jr. He is also the producer of 1925's The Phantom of the Opera starring Lon Chaney. And what's amazing watching that film now, if you're familiar with the universal horror films of the 30s and the 40s, to see that even in the silent era in 1925, all of those tenets, all of those kind of earmarks of universal horror are already there, but without the use of sound. Um, Lon Chaney is phenomenal. This was another instance of him. If you've ever seen the stills of The Phantom of the Opera, all that makeup That's Lon Chaney. Lon Chaney not only is the actor, he created all the makeup for that look. And Lamelle gave him a lot of latitude because a couple of years earlier, he had done The Hunchback in Notre Dame and did all his own makeup there as well. So when it came time for The Phantom of the Opera, it was basically a free all of just, hey, do what you need to do to make this work. And it works in gangbusters. It is also very much without sound a 1930s universal horror movie. It's got the weird humorous asides. It's got the side plots with the love triangles. Um, if you're in, interested in the history of silent film, it's color tinted. Uh, so depending on whether it's day or night, it's tinted blue or it's tinted yellow. There are green tints for certain sections. And again, I I don't think you can truly appreciate the growth of cinema Over the ages, unless you really start to see kind of some of the foundational works of the teens and the 20s that show what cinema could be back then with its limitations when it comes to effects, when it comes to camera tricks, when it comes to acting and performance. How do you tell the story when you have no sound? Um, Just like Sunrise, The Phantom of the Opera and um, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari are able to tell the story without dialogue. And make it effective and make it work. And while it may not be scary, it is creepy, and it is disturbing, and it lingers in your imagination um, the more you think about what it took to put those images on the screen. So those are my recommendations, and we will talk a lot more about horror uh, when we get into next month's episode, which will again be the Hooptober horror episode. So that's what I got, John.
0: That is... uh... Absolutely wonderful. Thank you for that. And uh thank you for what I knew I was gonna come in as a bit of a, a bit of a raw nerve uh um uh in regards to passionate Joan of Arc, but uh I think you actually ended up matching me uh in some spots for uh this being a surprisingly vulnerable uh and personal <laughs> episode. Uh so thank you for thank you for joining me in that and thank Always you. Always happy to
1: be vulnerable, sir.
0: <laughs> and thank you all for uh thank you all for listening uh definitely again make sure to check out cinemadual.com to check out both uh chris and dan's uh simultaneous uh parallel uh hooptober uh coverage and uh yeah we'll be back uh next month with uh more spooktacular hooptober goodness looking forward to it
1: thanks john and i'll see you next time